All right. Um, so I'm happy to have my friend Jacob join me today. Um, Jacob and I have known each other what it's been about a year. Yeah, I think close to two years now. Close to two years now. We met at Hallmark. Um, uh, Jacob works in IT with me at Hallmark. So mm-hmm. um, he, Jacob's been really helping me figure out how to get some podcast stuff and microphone. He's been texting me all the sorts of stuff to look at. So you, but you've not done a podcast or. Uh, no, I'm a, an avid consumer of podcasts, um, but other than, you know, I've been into music for a while and oh, yeah. did some recording as a band when I was younger and stuff like that. But Recording? I've never, what did you do in the band? I played the drums. You played the drums. Mm-hmm. You still play the drums? Uh, occasionally. We just moved into a place that's actually big enough to put drums up and not break our lease. So, <laughs> so uh, you keep up with it? Like, you still know how to play and all that? Yeah, and I mean, I'm not a... Uh, you know, professionally trained player or anything, but I really enjoy it. So that's, um, you know, kind of the hobby side of things. Yeah. That. So if, you, if you've done podcasts, then this should be the best podcast I've done, right? Yep. Because I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I basically just sit around. We're not drinking today, but, yeah. you know, so usually just sit around with my friends and bullshit and see what happens. Well, that's when you get a lot of good content, though. So. Yeah, you know, some of the conversations, um, they've all been good, uh, but there's just been moments in each of them when, you know, my friends who I hang out with um, and talk with and, and just sort of live life, there have been these moments when they ask me these questions that are really, that make me think about my life in a different way, you know? Yeah. And so it's been, um, it's been much better and a lot more fun than I thought it would be. I just sort of, um, on a whim, decided to do these and then out of nowhere, they're really, um, they've been really good, mm-hmm. really good for me to think about the book and about my life, so... Yeah, and I think, uh, I don't know if it's a unique perspective, but at least a different perspective that I have because, you know, I know Office Alex. Yeah. Right. And I know Suburban Alex. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, two years of Alex, um, usually in an office setting. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. You know, we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, previous work experience and yep. um, some things like that, but we really haven't... Uh, uh, dug into the details or had an extended talk about either one of our pasts and um, coming in pretty pretty fresh to the to the book as well I know of yeah. it. I know that you've been writing it and working on it um, you know but I haven't read any of it so yeah no it'll be interesting I don't know if you want to tell us any more about oh, you yeah. or um, I you know I I've been at uh, Hallmark about four years um, you know, working in IT for about four or five years, um, still pretty uh, new in the career sense, in a career space, but, um, you know, I've been uh, kind of building relationships with Alex and people like Alex as far as, uh, you know, in the mentor space and just, um, you know, I'd consider you a, a thought leader. Thanks. You know, you're not, you're not afraid to, to, to take a stand and um, push for new things or things that need to be done and um, surrounding yourself with people like that I think is really important if you're wanting to make change. So Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, working at Hallmark has been such a great experience. And, one, you know, one of the things that I read about in my book is um, meeting young people who embark on a new career or a new adventure. And in the book I write specifically about, like, young Marines mm. who – you know, graduate high school, and when I was in Iraq, and when I was in Afghanistan, they take on this challenge, and they say, 
yeah, I'm from, I don't know where, a little small town in the middle of nowhere. I never thought I would get out of my small town. And when they wind up on the dusty streets of, you know, some town in Fallujah or in Helmand province, they attack it. They mm -hmm. get after it, right? They like, I know what my job is and I'm going to excel at it. And rather than just, you know, hopping in their trucks and driving around and doing what they're told, you know, they try to learn the language. They try to learn the culture. Um, <clears throat> and obviously it's a very different environment, but I've seen the same thing at Hallmark. You know, I see people who... Um, you know, are trying to embark on a new career or try new challenges or look for new ways to um, live out their dream, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, when we first met, there were a few people at Hallmark who was like, oh, you got to meet Jacob. You know, he's really um, working his way up and, and trying to um, challenge himself, like I said. So that was, you know, for me, sort of the first encounter mm -hmm. of you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and it's been uh, it's been a journey, you know, as far as uh, career wise. Um, I've spent spent the four years at Hallmark. Um, I, I was at UPS previously, so it's kind of a one eighty. Uh, working at UPS, I was a, you know, it, it was a great experience, but um, you know, uh, production valued, uh, uh, replaceable cog in a machine. Oh yeah. Um, you know, results, results, results. Oh yeah. Uh, coming to Hallmark, uh, which air quotes the caring company. I mean, <laughs> Definitely. They, they have a caring culture. Yep. It was a, a 180, and uh, I had to adjust to that for sure. But there's still the the trappings of uh, corporate culture, and there's yeah. a, a way to navigate that. Right. So I've been really thankful for people like you and and others to help me kind of learn how to uh, navigate that that yeah. kind of area. Yeah, I mean, and, and it also invigorates me when I see people who are um, working their hardest to bring about change. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so, like you said, that like anywhere, there's the trappings of corporate culture and lots of people are trying to figure out how to um, get ahead, get promotions, get raises. And the temptation is to just fall in line, mm -hmm. right? The temptation is to say, well, I know this leader likes this or this person, this VP wants things done that way, so I better just do what they say and think like they think. Um, and, and everybody has to do that in some way, yeah. but you have to find a way to really, um, you know, I guess the way I would say it is like identify what the right thing is and stand up for it. Mm -hmm. And you have to you know, find a way to talk about it so you don't alienate people, but to figure out what's the right thing to do and then stand up for it, you know? Yeah. And that applies to people, uh, culture, um, the specific technologies, Yeah, you know, all of the above. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's been a theme, um, throughout my life is really, I wanted to say struggling, but really, um, identifying the things that matter for me, um, and not being distracted by what's going on in the world around me to, to um, keep me from moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. You know, and like you said, we've talked a little bit about my life and your life. So this will be a interesting conversation yep. to really sort of dig into it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested uh, looking at the clock uh, and not to put, put, put you under pressure, but I, I'm, I'd be interested in a, a 10 minute uh, Alex history lesson sure okay. <laughs> alex 10 minute history lesson i'm gonna yeah. look at the clock and yeah, see what it it'll says be interesting. yeah um so 
I tend to really describe my life chronologically. Um, and the reason is that the moments of my life really build on themselves. And so, you know, my earliest memories, like complete memories, revolve around growing up in a house with my mom and my stepdad and feeling like the world was against me. Mm. It was a really terrible um, way to live and to grow up. I didn't understand that I was supposed to feel loved and safe at home. You know, I felt completely out of place, completely uh, like a misfit. I felt like there was a world out there that existed and in that world there was love and happiness and security and I did not have access to it at all. And so that created a couple of really important components to my personality. And probably the first thing that it created within me was this fight, right? This undying, unwavering commitment to myself. You know, I wasn't very old when I had to realize, you know, and I was way too young when I had to realize that no one was going to help me in this life. You know, even as a kid, I had to realize um, that if I wanted to get good grades in school and not just tangible things like grades or um, I wanted to buy the clothes that I wanted or eat the food that I wanted, but if I wanted to have the right if I even wanted to be able to think about myself in any way that wasn't negative, I had to do that for myself. No one was going to coddle me. No one was going to take me in their arms and comfort me and tell me that um, life was good and I was good. I had to do that all myself. Yeah. You know, so, you know, one of the most important things was I, um, I developed this fight. On the other side of it, it also created this urge to run this need to constantly push away from whatever was sort of holding me in or whatever I perceived was holding me in you know so if I was living somewhere you know as a let's say as a teenager um, as a 20 something if I was living somewhere and doing something and it started to feel comfortable, you know, if I started to lose the need for that fight that, that had been instilled within me, then I would run. And that was running away from relationships. It was running away from places, um, challenges. Thankfully, that running away from, <clears throat> I ultimately learned how to turn that into a, uh, drive mm -hmm. right? running to something running to something yeah. right and that too you know so now i would say the running from was really in like my early 20s and the the running to like that when as i started to mature a little bit and i joined the navy right i joined the navy um in 1996 so i would have been 21 
And so there was a period of time when I was in the Navy where I was still running from. And while I was in the Navy, I, um, you know, I'm sort of shaking my head just because I, I'm, I'm putting into this framework of, of running from and running to. And when I was in the Navy, I um, became Catholic. Right before the Navy, I became Catholic. And while I was in the Navy, I found this Catholic silent monastery that I started to go to and spend a lot of time at. And, you know, we've been talking for just a few minutes now. And, you know, the amount of time that we've talked in this conversation is probably as much as I would have talked in half a day or three quarters of a day. You know, you spent your days praying and um, working doing chores, chores, and going to mass, et cetera. And I think that was probably around the time that I started to um, realize that I was running from the pain of my childhood and started to identify what I could run towards. And it really ties in with this idea of um, this hero life that I talk about. It's, it's, it's probably one of the first concrete times in my life when I said, you know, when I was younger, I realized that I had to be my own protector. I had to be my own support system. And that sustained me. But there came a point where it started to propel me forward. I stopped needing to support myself and love myself in order to just exist and to stay alive and not kill myself. It went from just sustainment to propelling forward you know and so um partially through when i was in the navy like i said i went to this monastery and i started to really like reach outside of myself and then i got out of the navy after four years and i went to grad school um and i really started to excel in grades and i was able to start thinking more clearly and in more complex ways about who I wanted to be mm -hmm. and the life I wanted to live. And I thought about becoming like a university professor, you know, <clears throat> and then nine 11 happened. Right. And nine 11 is one of the most important watershed moments of my life. Nine 11 happened. And I was dumbfounded that something like this could happen in the U S I, I was like a lot of Americans, um, just not very well educated about the Middle East. And so, you know, 9-11 happens and then I, um, I immediately started asking myself, who did this? Why did they do this? In the book, you know, I, rem I wrote about how this thought kept going through my head, which is, who are they? Who are these people who would do such a thing? And I had no idea. I couldn't have pointed, you know, Saudi Arabia or Yemen or anything like that on a map if somebody, you know, handed it to me. And were you thinking individual or as a culture? At that point, it was an individual, right? Like, I could only imagine that there were specific people. I didn't know anything about Islam, um, some fundamentalists, or anything like that. You yeah. know, I was just like, there must be some crazy people. You know, and so 9-11 happened, and I, on a dime, changed my entire life. I was in graduate school um, in Boulder, and I was studying Buddhism and um, like international politics. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and immediately I changed and I started studying Arabic and Islamic studies. And one of my friends, when I was in graduate school, you know, he like, you know, about a year later we ran into each other 
And he said, he's like, I couldn't believe how quickly you change. He's like, the very next day you were carrying around an Arabic vocabulary <laughs> book, <laughs> you know? And he's like, you carried it every day. And, and that's another theme of my life is that, and it, it's, a, and it's an example of that change from the running from migrating to the running to, right? And so rather in that moment, I started running towards my new future. I created this new hero of my life, which was me. And that hero could solve U.S. Middle Eastern policy. <laughs> I, yeah. Not a small undertaking. Not a small undertaking. It was, it was foolhardy, but it was exactly who I am. It was the exact thing that I needed to do. And there was no turning back. And so... Um, yeah, obviously that was 2001 by 2003, I was in the middle East for the first time. And from then on, I was back and forth to the middle East until 2014. I lived with, searched for, uh, Muslim fundamentalists all over the middle East and was very successful at it. Um, I, you know, I was in Syria, I was in Yemen, I was in Egypt, Jordan, um, all over the Persian Gulf, Kuwait, Qatar, UAE, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, like all over the Middle East, in taxis, um, on motorcycles, um, walking in the desert, sleeping on the beach, you know, just wherever I could find Muslim fundamentalists, I lived with them in order to understand 9-11. Mm-hmm. And in, in the book, I talk a lot about how there were these really two important moments there was a moment when i learned how to think like a muslim fundamentalist you know even though i'm not muslim i spent so much time memorizing the quran and memorizing um like religious law mm-hmm. that i could recite it off the top of my head you know i could have conversations and just repeat it and recite it and um and in those moments i stopped it stopped being like something I did stop being an, an academic pursuit and it was just part of my life. I was spending so much time in the Middle East, so much time, you know, I wasn't really listening to music. I wasn't going to watch movies. I was studying the Quran, memorizing the Quran. And so that was one moment when I st- started to think like a Muslim fundamentalist. And then there was another moment some uh, years later where I was living in Oman in the, in the Gulf and I was wearing the traditional garb. I was living with, um, you know, devout conservative Muslims. I was praying in the mosque as an observer. I wasn't Muslim still, but um, trying to understand how they did the movements and why they did them. I was fasting Ramadan, you know, mm-hmm. so I wasn't eating anything, drinking water or anything, you know, for the month of Ramadan. And in that moment, I, I felt like I didn't just think like a Muslim fundamentalist. I acted like one. Mm-hmm. And it was like my entire... And it was almost like it was the moment when I realized that dream that I had in, in uh, 2001. Mm-hmm. right? This dream of um, understanding who they were. And so... <clears throat> 
soon thereafter, when I had this, what I would call like a, really an important transformation, um, I got a call from um, a civilian consulting firm to work with the military. Mm -hmm. And then I spent, you know, time working and living in Iraq and Afghanistan, Central and East Africa. And for about 13 years, I was obsessed, completely obsessed with the Middle East and spent most all of my time there, mm -hmm. most all of my time um, in the Middle East. And then in 2014, I grew severely depressed. Um, it was sort of like cumulative trauma. You know, lots mm -hmm. of bad stuff happened in Iraq. Lots of bad stuff happened in Afghanistan that I never really processed. And so after that long period of time, I, I couldn't take it anymore. You know, and I came back. I was living in D.C. at the time. Uh, that's where my permanent house was. And when I came back, I said, I need to settle down. I made three promises to myself. It was one, I'm never going back to the Middle East. <laughs> Two, um, I'm going to finish my dissertation, get my PhD. And three, I said I needed to settle down. And thank God, not long after that, I met Jeremy. We met online. And that, you know, sort of started the next chapter of my life. And then in 20... 15 um yeah so jeremy and i met and then um sometime after that i moved to kansas city and started working at the hallmark so that's close to the <laughs> yeah, 10 minutes that's pretty close <laughs> so um i want to talk more about this this uh transition from uh middle east to it yeah uh but first um I don't know, maybe we can talk about it, but just some, some observations that are really interesting that I can tie parallels to from my life is uh, that um, it seems that uh, uh, your life, or at least uh, the major points of your life, tend to be pretty cyclic. Um, what do you mean by that? So, you know, you say you're running to and from, uh -huh. um, but it also seems to me that there's a an element of... Uh, chaos or uh, yeah. unstructured yep. and moving towards a structured environment. So yeah. um, maybe just in generalization, your childhood uh, and then moving into the military, a lot of structure. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and your childhood and moving into religion. Yeah. Um, and then once you're done with the military, you move into the structured environment of graduate studies. Yeah. And then, um, you know, after that you move into, I guess you could, more more religious structure as well um but just having a mission yeah that structure yeah and then once you've accomplished that mission or at least had that personal transformation you say what's next yeah you say you're going to settle down that's more structure yeah. you end up with a partner that seems pretty structured yeah and uh that's personally something i've i've noticed to myself as well is that um not, I, I mean, I wouldn't draw direct lines between our, our upbringing, but a lot of chaos in my childhood and, and uh, shifting and moving. Um, and that to succeed, I've noticed that I have to build structure for myself. Yeah. You know, I live from a calendar. My wife is very structured um, <laughs> and I thank her for that all the time. I yeah. probably don't say it enough, but um, surrounding and building the structure around yourself, it's almost like an armor it to is. protect you. It is, you know, it's, it's something I have thought about before, 
I don't know that I've put all the pieces together like you have, you know, and I think part of the cycle for me has been, um, relying less and less on external structure. So I think you're right. You know, when I was younger, obviously in my, in my childhood, there was so much chaos mm -hmm. in, in my life and kids need structure in some ways at yep. least, you know? And so the military helped me get that, you know? And I think as I went through my life, the the structure stopped being really important externally and I had to internalize that somehow. Yeah. You know, because it's easy to get a, addicted to the chaos yeah. as a way of avoiding life in yep. some ways, you know? And so that's probably, you know, the phase that I'm going, part of what's, what the phase of my life now is, yeah. How do I internalize this if I if I want to settle down? You know, one of the things I write about in the book is how I didn't know what it meant when I said I need to settle down. I didn't know exactly what that would mean. You know, I figured part of it would be um, a nine to five job. You know, but mm -hmm. other than that, I don't think I really got it. And you know, the more I've been here in Kansas City, the more I've developed the relationship with Jeremy. Probably um, the more I understand the value of it, but also the enormity of the task hits me. You know, when I first moved here, Jeremy and I used to sort of laugh because it's like, if if I had known what I was getting myself into before I moved here, <laughs> I may not have moved, you yeah. know, because I'd never been in a long, any long-term relationship, you know, and it's hard work, you know, it's obviously it's worth it, but especially for me, for someone who's single most of his life and traveled the world doing basically whatever I wanted, you know, um, that chaos is really comfortable, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yep. and, and, and not knowing exactly the benefit of putting down that chaos is, is scary. Yep. Yep. And I mean, that, that chaos can be a benefit too. I mean, having, yeah. you know, you, I think you learn a lot. Like you had said earlier, you learn a lot. You learn how to, you know, deal with high pressure situations and, yeah. um, remain calm in situations where others may not right. and prioritize, you know, just logically prioritize actions that need to be taken in situations instead yeah. of, instead of thinking and feeling about it. Exactly. You learn how to, to compartmentalize your, your logical decisions and your, your feeling decisions. Um, and that can be really useful, especially in a corporate environment right. or something like that. Um, uh, but it, it does have some bite because when you're in a relationship with somebody and you start logically prioritizing things and, yeah, right. or uh, not thinking about how a decision would impact somebody else because you're being very logical right. about the outcome, right. it doesn't tend to work out too well. Yeah, yeah, you know, and for me, like, I think of things in very stark terms, yeah. you know, like this is the right thing to do. You know, it could be like whether we should go to, you know, this restaurant or that restaurant. I'm like, no, that's the wrong thing to do. And this is the right thing to do, yep. you know, because I'm so used to needing to be decisive in moments and to completely ignore emotion, Yep. you know, and, and for me, it's not just, it hasn't just been an, 
a desire to avoid emotion. It's been a need, yep. right? Because, you know, growing up, and I don't know if it was the same for you, but succumbing to the emotions that were going on inside of me would have been death, yep. right? In the worst case, it would have been death, right? Like I would have, I would have succumbed to my own internal self-doubt, etc. Yeah, it's a spiral. It's a spiral. And if you get caught up in it, you don't get out of it. And so that ignoring of emotions has been a defense mechanism. Yep. Right, a, a vital defense mechanism. Yep. To the point where, I don't know if it's the same with you, but I have to, uh, you know, if you think of it like a switch or a lever, yeah. I have to turn it on. It's The norm is, is yeah. not deal with that. Right. And then when you're having those heart-to-heart conversations or whatever, um, it's it's gotten better over the years, but having to consciously make the decision to be, you know, okay, this is a time to actually have emotions, <laughs> have, emotions. have a stake in the conversation. Yeah, so. yeah, and it's not easy. Um, and like I said, I think it's tough because part of me wants to say, if I had known what I was getting myself into it, I wouldn't have done it. But there's another part of me that has always known that the constantly the constant moving around from place to place was not sustainable yeah. for me. You know, there was something more out of life that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, um, maybe getting a little too deep right here, but uh, even uh, being, I don't know, I'd call myself relatively young, <laughs> 27. Yeah, yeah uh, you are. <laughs> having some of those existential thoughts about like, what is your impact on the world? Yeah. Um, and what, it, what really is valuable, you know, thinking long-term, not just, um, you know, 25 years, a hundred years, talk about thousands of years or something. Yeah, right. Lines. Right. It's, it's really the relationships. Yeah. And I think that's the, the most valuable portion of our lives. That's the most difficult portion of our lives. And, and it's definitely going to be the most challenging part yeah. of our lives. And I think it's interesting that you've kind of landed on that as your next challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd be interested to, to see what you think. Are you, are you ever going to be comfortable, settled down? <laughs> but that's just part of the ongoing challenge, I think. It is. You know, I want to answer that question about being comfortable, settled down. But, you know, one of the other things that you said was um, about the kind the difference that we make mm-hmm. right and so i remember when i i told you i made these three promises or sort of ultimatums to myself and i think the reason i was able to do that is because i had exhausted my need to have i'm going to say i'm going to say it this way and then yeah. i want to explain it I exhausted my need to have the impact on the world that I wanted, right? So when I, when 9-11 happened, I was like, I have to change the yeah. world. And in some ways I did, you know, quite honestly, there are ways that I had an impact on, you know, U.S. foreign policy, specific Iraqis or Afghans or people in various African countries and had an impact on how they thought about me as a person or how they thought about um, the United States or our policy or how we implemented policy in places, right? So there was, there was a, what would you call it? There was a terminus mm-hmm. to the need 
to have global impact. My question is, um, you know, did you, was it a run out of steam or was it yeah. I have fulfilled the need? And that's why I think I've been really choosing my words carefully yeah. because it's a combination of both. Yeah. I think there's a part of it where I can say, you know, there's a bunch of stories in the book where I talk about I had an experience which was, was, was an experience that I had dreamed about for years. Someone like rushes into my office and says, hey, we need somebody who understands religion and who understands fundamentalist Muslims. And, I'm like, and they're like, oh, you know, we hop in the middle of a Humvee and we drive out into the middle of the dusty roads of um, Fallujah, right? And so those moments are, you know, I was sitting at Baghdad International Airport and these young, younger than you, you know, 22, 23-year-old Marines who are living out in the middle of nowhere. They don't have running water. They don't have electricity. They're um, eating out of bags, you know, and they run up to me and they say, Hey, we remember you, you came and talked to us about gender roles in Islam, or you talked to us about fasting. You know, we were able to use that when we were interacting with our tribal leaders or, you know, so I've had those moments when, um, the thing that I dreamed about doing and being, I was doing and being. So that, that's a part where, there's part of it where I fulfilled my mission, but there's another part of it where um, you said ran out of steam. And I think, I think that's probably an accurate phrase. I would, I would think of it for me that um, I, was, um, I was getting closer and closer to creating the self that I wanted to live for the long term. Yep. You know, and so that self that needed to fix U.S. Middle East policy transformed in yeah. some way. And, and, I, and, and sorry, and I don't want to, I'm being very precise with my yeah. language, but I don't want to take away from the fact that I was um, spent. Yeah. I, I was spent emotionally, psychologically. Maybe it's, maybe running out of steam isn't the best term. Because um, I guess it's, it's kind of one of those things where you really, maybe it's the, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe it's that you realize that it's an unending mission. It it is going to continue, and yeah. it, it isn't. I don't know if there is a terminus for that mission. Yeah, I mean, for you know, for the policy side of it, there is no end. Yeah, right. It is something that will continue, and there will be generations after me who take on that mantle to to solve a, to solve that problem. Yeah. Right. But as we talk about it, and and. I haven't really thought about it in this way in particular, but it's like I said, it's, there was a transformation inside of me that I was not conscious of. Mm -hmm. Part of the impetus for that transformation was, um, suffering through trauma. Right. And so, you know, in Iraq, I lost, lost a dear friend of mine. Um, and, you know, experienced all sorts of things <clears throat> in Afghanistan and other places. And that had an impact on me, which again was subconscious, you know, so that's probably one thing. There's another part of it where I saw other people who were on the same path that I was, but five or 10 years ahead of me, mm -hmm. they had been doing it for longer than I had been doing. And I never met someone who was full of joy and happiness and was creating 
the kinds of relationships that I wanted to be creating. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure those people existed. Um, I just never met them. Someone who had been at that, you know, for as long as I had, you know, a decade, 12, 15 years, really focused on um, the Middle East, right? I didn't meet anybody who was full of joy, as I would say. Someone who was being the hero of their narrative, who was directing their lives explicitly. Most of the people who I'd met who had been doing it that long were bitter, mm -hmm. disenfranchised, and compensating for that disconnectedness by focusing on money. And because uh, money's tangible. Money is tangible. It's an achievement that you can make. It's a it's a number that you can aim for. Yep. Uh, a shift in in cultural expectations exactly. or religion is not a you know it's not a defined point. Right. You know. Yeah, and even on that side of it, I felt like most people were delusional. You know, most of the people who were doing the work that I was doing, you know. There were people making a lot more money than me, you know, and I looked at them and I said, you should be retired by now. If you've been doing this for 10 years and you're making more, you know, all this money, you should be retired. You should have the house you need, the car you need, your kids, their, you know, education should be paid for, yep. et cetera, et cetera. And you should be home, yep. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think underneath the surface of all of this, um, and this is a really good conversation because I think it is something that I've kind of thought about, but I have not really put it into words. Um, but you know, I met all these people who were not putting it all together for their good, their family's good, you know? And I was like, I, I don't want to live that way. And thank God, you know, again, I mean, this is not something that I've ever said or really thought about it, but thank God there was this trigger inside of me that refused to keep going. I'm, I'm thinking in my head, I have this image of, you know, like somebody trying to walk a dog down the street, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and in this case, it would be like the dog senses danger at the end of the block, right? And the dog just lays down, he's got his paws spread out, you know, and the owner's trying to drag him down the street. And that's basically what it was for me, you know, like my conscious self was like, no, we're doing this, you know, we're gonna keep doing this, we're gonna keep making money, we're gonna keep working in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I said, it was, um, I was 2014 and I was in Bahrain living what should have been my best life, right? Mm -hmm. Like I had a great job making decent money. Um, the place where I lived, you know, we had a rooftop pool and had friends over. I played rugby. It was just, um, I had lots of friends, you know, even though I was in the Middle East, it wasn't a combat zone, you know, so, but every day I would go home and I would sit in the dark turn the lights off. I wouldn't eat. I would just sit there all night, you know, and, and it was like, there's that, you know, the, mm -hmm. sometimes I describe myself as like a dog with a bone, right? Like I, I have a mission in life. I have a goal, something I want to accomplish and no one can knock me off of it. And it was the same thing in the, in those moments, there was something inside of me, which would not let go of the fact that I was done. Mm -hmm. That would not let me ignore the need to go back home. So can you, um, do you recall the moment that that subconscious became conscious? Well, yeah, I mean, it was very visceral because I was so depressed. Mm -hmm. I think the moment that matters really is when I heard it. 
and maybe that's what you mean um, is when it became conscious. I mean, when I noticed it was when I couldn't, I mean, I was still going to work, but I couldn't force myself to um, spend time with friends or go out or anything like that. But the moment it um, became really unavoidable was there was a voice as I was, you know, I don't know how far into this depression it was, but there was a voice that said, go home. And my, normally my internal voice is like a drill instructor. Mm. You know, it's like, get off your ass, let's go. You know, like if I'm um, riding my bike or on the rowing machine or in the gym or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, the voice is like, is that as fast as you can go? Let's go, you know, let's go move fast. You know, it's like loud, it's obnoxious. It's like, you know, but it, the voice was very quiet and very um, quiet and powerful and mm-hmm. said, go home. And it was, it was so, so first of all, it was so different from my inter- normal internal voice, which is always motivated and always pushing me to move faster and to do more and lift more heavy things. You know what I mean? That, that voice, it was so different from that, but it was also um, so assured and assuring and comforting that the moment I, it wasn't like I had to, you know, I heard it for days and days and days before I finally, it was like the moment that calm, serene, comforting voice emerged in that darkness, I knew right away. And, and in that moment, I, I changed the course of my life again. So it was, uh, you know, similar to what occurred to you on, you know, September 11th, 2001, except it was an internal. Yeah. You know, it, it, there are a number of moments in my life. Um, one of the experiences that I talk about, and it's a transition, um, from being really running from and uh, running to is there was another period in my life when I was, um, depressed and I didn't know why. I was also at that point very um, religious. I was Protestant. I was in a Baptist undergraduate college studying to be a a minister. And, you know, looking back, it's no surprise that I suffered with depression through various periods of my life. But in Mm -hmm. that moment, I didn't understand it. You know, in that moment, just like when I was in Bahrain, I was oblivious to the deep impact of how I grew up, you know, so I would have just gotten out of my house as a kid. Um, and I knew, obviously I knew I had a terrible upbringing, but because I had, I was already starting to build this hero, um, image of myself and I had already figured out that I had to save myself from my own hell. I pushed on and then like lots of people just pushed that all into my subconscious. And there was a moment I was in Wisconsin and I was at a friend's church. It was empty. I was just there praying by myself. And like, you know, it's, uh, it was like a scene from like the Old Testament or something like that. You know, I'm like laying on the floor. I've got my hands spread out. I've got my head buried into the carpet and I'm just praying to God, you know, and I'm like, heal me from this sadness that's, mm-hmm. you know, making me feel like I'm further away from you, God. And... I heard this voice. It was external, right? It was an external voice, but it was as real as anything ever, you know? And the voice said, St. Francis, 
it created a it created a reality for me. I didn't know who St. Francis was. Like I hopped up, you know, the voice repeated a few times, right? And I'm like, this is really strange, you know? You know, I, I talk about how I believe that God talks to people, but I didn't believe he talked to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and in that moment, so this person who I probably had heard of at some point in, in life, but didn't know anything about, and, you know, and so I start to go read about this person, St. Francis, and it, it again transformed my life, you know? So that's another moment where this voice reaches down and grabs me in one of my lowest moments. And what happened in Bahrain was very similar. And there are other moments in my life where things like that happen. And, you know, I'm not tied to how people explain it. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not really tied to whether people believe it's divine intervention or not. What matters is that it had a life-changing impact on me. And part of it is subconscious. You know, there's part of my subconscious, which is reaching out to the conscious and saying, get your shit together, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And it's the nicer, calmer voice, yeah. right? But it's, okay, we can do this. Yeah. We can figure this out too. This also has a solution. And those moments have been life-saving and transformational for me. So you view the, uh, it's interesting, the, there are few occurrences, there might be more of, of instigating major change in your life. Um, seems like, you know, earlier in the timeline, these are external forces and, uh, you know, more current or in Bahrain, it was, uh, you know, you perceived it as an internal force. Yeah. That's, you know, <laughs> you're bringing out some really good cycle sorts of things. Um, and I think that's a good observation. You know, it's moving more and more internal. And like I said, there's probably all sorts of different explanations for mm -hmm. it. And it's probably really tied to self-awareness. Yeah. You know, my ability to own my the course of my life and not needing to externalize it. Um, or another way of saying it may be, I've grown deaf to the voice of God, and you know, I just interpret it in uh, psychological terms, you know. But like I said, no matter how you explain it, um, the important thing is that I've been able to hold on to this theme of, I've never said this expression, but like self-salvation. Mm. You know, the ability... And I can't stress enough the importance of this term, like uh, this hero life, you know, the ability for all of us to conceptualize, you know, to take that time to stop and think about where we are in our lives. So conceptualize and then, so yeah, take that who we are and turn that into who we want to be. And we, in our minds, we create that who we want to be. And then we go about doing the things that will allow us to bring that conception into reality. Mm -hmm. And that is, if not the, one of the most core themes in my life. And it's a really important theme in the book. I talk a lot, I mean, again, I talk a lot about not wanting to fetishize 
combat. Mm-hmm. You know, not wanting to be like, oh, I'm this badass Navy SEAL or Green Beret and look how many guys I killed and look how many bullets I dodged and how many places I've been. Um, there is some of that normal combat stuff in my book, explosions and death, destruction. But the point is not to glorify war. The point is to create a context that allows for a discussion about the impacts of combat and how those of us who come back struggle to um, reacclimate, but that there is hope, right? That there is a way to do that and to incorporate both components of our lives, right? Being at combat and being not at combat and, you know, and how we accomplish those things. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, without glorifying um, combat situations, and I've never been in a situation like that, so, um, you know, this is coming from, I guess, a different perspective. There's still experiences that you've been through, you know, uh, dodging a, a bullet or um, even in, a, I guess, non-combat life, a life-threatening situation or yeah. near-death experience. Um, those are going to shape how you live the rest of your life. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and it becomes a question of whether those experiences be, are the hero of your life or whether you are the hero of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, and so many people talk about my parents did this or that to me or this or that happened to me when I was in combat or whatever, whoever person has done this or that thing to me or taken something from me or given me something I didn't want. And in those moments, that thing or that person becomes the hero because we relinquish control of our ability to define who we are because someone else has that ability, you know? And so shitty things happen to all of us, right? And so the answer isn't identify the cause of the shittiness, right? The answer is to identify the path forward to living that hero life that we conceptualized, right? Mm -hmm. We conceptualize this person that we want to be. And then the task is to figure out how to accomplish that, regardless of what has been given or taken away from us. Yeah. Your reaction to to the shittiness. Yeah. And also, I mean, it is definitely the reaction, but it's also the tenacity to not lose sight of that fantasy, right? One of the things I talk about in the book is how when I was a kid, I created this fantasy of being a hero, you know? And so, yes, it's true that we need to react to situations. Sorry, it is true that, the, that we own our reactions to situations. That's true. I think more importantly than that is our ability to hold on to, without wavering, our conception of our hero self. The best that we can be, we cannot lose sight of that based on the shit that happens in the world around us. And so it, it, it changes it from a, well, shit, I just better hold on to life, right? And I'll just react well to situations. It, it converts it from that almost like reactionary and turns it into uh, 
an explicit, principled focus on how we get to be who we believe we truly are. So, um, how, so, you know, people like myself, um, or veterans, individuals with, uh, you know, the, the ability to compartmentalize some of those things, say the situation sucked. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, uh, when you look at it, like a disconnection of emotions to be able to make sure that you get, get what you need out of the situation. Um, how does, how do you translate to individuals that may not have that skill or are learning that skill or, you know, may not have had traumatic experiences in their past? You know, is, is this for them too? Is, or how do you, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for better or worse, my story has a lot of extreme Mm -hmm. experiences, but I think the principles remain the same. And you don't have to have gone through the worst that life has to offer in order to live this hero life, right? And to find the techniques needed to realize one's true self. So what I would say, the first part of hero work is that conceptualization. And I I really can't overemphasize how critical it is to stop and think about who you are. Many of us are really action oriented, Mm -hmm. tangible, like you said, you know, we're focused on, you know, and I'm the same way, how much money we make, what title we have, what kind of car we drive, our houses, all that kind of stuff. What's next? What's next? Yep. What am I running towards, right? Yeah. What's the next adventure, the next challenge, the next opportunity, et cetera. And that is what makes it difficult to take that time to stop and say, who is my true self? Who am I? And it can be scary hmm. and it can take a lot of time. It can take time for an individual to like in their mind, like I said, divest themselves of the things, the things, the material things that matter most. And in those moments when we're able to encounter our true self, then we, it becomes compelling in and of itself. Mm -hmm. We find the thing that really motivates us. So, so, you know, you're asking the question around what about people who have, you know, they're not, combat veterans, they haven't experienced um, all sorts of trauma, what applicability does this have? And I would say that there's there's a couple of hard parts of this hero work, but one of the hardest things is to take the time to stop and think. Yeah, and and I think also that comes from from a cultural side too. Yeah. Um, You know, if you're not being productive, you're not adding value. Um, and like productive is defined in usually very materialistic yeah, ways. Taking action. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm on the other side of this. You know, I have not, whether it's because I haven't had the chance or I haven't decided to, or that, you know, I just haven't found it yet. I haven't found that base non-material drive yet. Yeah. And that's something that I've really been grappling with the last... But you're what? You're 18, 19 or something like that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm young, but this is... I feel 
and I, I think this is going to happen to people on at different points in their lives. Sure. And it should probably happen multiple times in yeah, somebody's life. You absolutely. Know, it's not a static image. It's, um, absolutely. And and your drive's going to change. I mean, take you for example, yeah. as far as you know, nine eleven, Bahrain, drastically different. Uh, um, images of a hero sure definitely for yourself um but still driving towards those and that you know it's uh it's an interesting exercise to try to try to divest yourself yeah. and look at what your core motivations are as an individual it's really difficult to do and like yeah. you said i mean a couple of reasons it's difficult is because one it's not seen as productive yep um and two um it's it's just not something that we find a lot of like, we're not given the techniques to do it. We're not given the time to do it. And the congratulations when we accomplish it, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> the outcome is like I said, it doesn't solve it's like, like it solves all of life's problems. Right. But the outcome of that work is to be internally motivated yep. and it's hard to overstate the value of that, of being grounded in that way. And so when someone says to you, no, you may not go left, you must go right. You may have no power to say, I'm going left because I want to go left. But even as you're going right, you are still able to hold on to who you are, to the hero within. And you have the ability to identify every opportunity to turn left mm -hmm. to turn back left and so even like I said when we're not in control of our environment completely there's still that fire that passion that exists within us and we recognize it and are able to activate it when the opportunity arises it's also a um Tying back to structure, it's a way of creating structure of how, yeah. you, do, how you deal with situations. It, that's absolutely path forward. That's absolutely right. You know, for someone like me, again, who grew up in a very chaotic emotional environment, it's a uh, it's a, another defense mechanism, right? Because as a kid, I I didn't have much control at all, and you know, as an adult, we don't have absolute control over everything going on around us. But a way for me to manage my emotions is to be able to say to myself, I know who I am. The fact that I can't live that out because of X, Y, or Z is irrelevant to who I am as a person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and when you have the power and it's some, you know, when you have the power to disregard the outside world in moments of spiritual, mental, psychological health, I don't know of anything more powerful than that. Yep. When you're able to stand up within yourself, for yourself, regardless of what the outside world says, I don't know of much more powerful than that. And Lane, like you said, I mean, it, it, it makes sense that someone like me, someone who's had the experiences that I've had, um, values that kind of freedom, right? Values that ability to disconnect because I spent so much time 
in environments where I didn't have control and as a kid, you know, I wish I could have disconnected. Yep. You're bringing out some good questions and good conversations. So yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what the, uh, the people say about whether it's the best podcast ever. Yeah. <laughs> you want to take a break or you're good? I'm good. Okay. But, um, let's change, uh, topics, not topics. Let's change, uh, viewpoints okay. how do you apply this in a corporate environment in a career uh, environment yeah yeah that's a good question maybe how have you yeah i think probably the first thing for me especially in a corporate environment is that there are parts of the culture which are productive and healthy and there are parts which are not mm-hmm. and so in any environment but in the corporate world Particularly, you know, you're constantly being judged by what you do, um, how you carry yourself, how you interact with people. And so it has helped me, and this is really kind of repeating what we just said, but it's helped me to stay centered and focused on who I am. Rather than trying to figure out what I need to do and say to fit in and sort of toe the company line. And that's fine, right? It's fine to toe the company line. You know, we both work at Hallmark and Hallmark cares about building relationships. So there's a lot about the company line at Hallmark that makes you feel good Mm -hmm. and you don't need to resist that. But, you know, like any place, there are clicks, there are trends in the way that people want to think. There are just things about corporate life that you don't want to fall into and so you know my insistence on holding on to my hero self allows me to be very precise about what parts of the corporate culture I dive headlong into and what parts of it I work to either avoid or change you know and so that's one thing the second thing is really around being an example for others who are trying to live their best self. So lots of people are, like I said, just trying to get ahead. They are really focused on the material components of, of the corporate world. And so I love connecting with people who are, who see the, you know, work as a way of expressing who they truly are. And it can be really difficult to do that when so many people are not. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing I do. And, and that also keeps me motivated, you know, being able to find people um, that I connect with. I think those are two probably um, ways that I brought my perspective about life to work. So how do you take the internal drive, internal motivation, the your hero self that defines the way that you move forward and how do you convert that into external change in any type of organization? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the most important things is to be really focused on, um, including everyone in the conversation. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So one of the ways I think that we can bring that I can, really encourage everyone to bring their hero self is to advocate for people I don't like. 
you know, there are people that I've worked with who I don't like. I don't like the way they express their opinions. I don't like the way they develop relationships. I don't like whatever, whatever it is I don't like about them. But I try to be very um, deliberate about separating what I like about them and what they bring to the table. Mm. You know, and so I've worked with people who I know they talk bad about me behind my back. They talk bad about me to my boss. And again, if they have valid, I'm not saying you just, you know, advocate for everyone, but I've had people that I work with that I don't like that I know don't like me, but I still advocate for them because I believe that the substance of what they're saying, um, is valuable. And, and we as an organization needs to bring, bring that to bear, you know, so that's one area where I think it's really important. Um, you know, Hallmark is really good about ensuring that women have a voice in a somewhat male dominated environment, not necessarily at Hallmark in particular, but, you know, identifying sort of broader groups of people who don't have a voice and ensuring again, when they have something, um, that, that can move the conversation forward, that we create space. And again, you know, this goes back to like corporate culture, you know, if we see a culture that implicitly even um, ignores or devalues, you know, people of color, women, trans people, whoever it is, right, then we have an opportunity to elevate those voices. Mm-hmm. And so, again, that's, that's one of the things. And another thing for me is, you know, I worked in the military, um, the government, and those kinds of environments are really focused on who's able to play the game the best. And so I really try to advocate for new slash young slash non-tenured people, right? Who, again, even if just implicitly will be ignored because they don't have the status that other people might have. Mm -hmm. And so again, I guess, you know, um, The main thing I would say for me is that we don't say heroes look like this and they always look like that or they always talk this way or they care about these things. Even if there are things that I don't care about and things that I don't like, I want to ensure that I'm not stifling that person's ability to live their true self. So that's that's one thing that's really important to me. Gotcha. So... What got you into IT? That's a pretty big change of uh, a very, you know, I'm sure there's definitely parallels between, uh, you know, uh, political policies and uh, foreign policies and um, the, uh, I guess you could say the political landscape of the corporate environment. Sure. uh, There's some parallels there. But uh, what made you choose IT? data yeah um and uh i'm interested particularly in why you chose hallmark uh for it and data yeah um so the story for me is it's fairly progressive over time and maybe this will fit into your Mm. cycle theory about my life um so you know i was in the middle of my phd work when i went to iraq and when i got to iraq the 
Marine Corps leaders, the U.S. Marine Corps leaders, one of the first things they said to me was, um, religious leaders are bad. Mm. <laughs> and religion is bad. It's Islam. The religion of Islam is bad. And, you know, I'd spent the previous, you know, five years or so studying Islam, right? And spending time with, like, religious leaders. So I was like, that's not right. <laughs> I don't know where you got that information, but I don't think that's right. Um, and so I realized very quickly that I was not going to be able to convince them they were wrong by citing the Quran or talking about my experiences. So I started, I found this database of transcribed sermons for the uh, previous, I think it was like five years, and there were tens of thousands of these reports. And I started um, doing all sorts of analysis on them. I did uh, like word counting and topic modeling, all these sort of basic uh, modeling on this data. And I happened to know um, ArcGIS, so I knew how to build um, maps, geospatial maps. And I started, you know, getting more and more into it. I coded all these reports. I started building uh, maps for our Marine Corps leaders. And I was able to show them that of the data we had, which was a small subset and had all sorts of issues with it, but of the data we had, less than 2% of the religious leaders were saying things negative about the United States or the Iraqi government or anything like that. And so that was sort of like my foot in. They were like, mm -hmm. well, how do you know that? And I was like, well, I have these 20,000 reports. I can either walk you through all of them or I can show you the highlights. I can show you the number of religious leaders who've moved around the um, province and what they're talking about. So that was sort of my foot in. And that sort of got their, their heads scratching and like, well, if there's so few of them that are negative, then what are they talking about? And I was like, well, you know, 80 plus percent of them are talking about, you know, make sure you take care of the poor and the hungry, treat your family right, make sure you go to prayer, you know, like just normal mainstream religious principles. And, you know, so then I got more um, foot in the door and they're like, well, what's left? And I was like, there are people who are saying the Americans are here to help us and that we should support them and work with them. And they're, you know, that sort of like got their eyes wide open, right? And so they're like, okay, well, give us the names of these people that we can build um, positive relationships with, right? And so, you know, more and more I got my foot in the door and I saw the power of data to change lives at yeah. that point, right? So now I've got a regiment of Marines who are starting to focus rather than saying we should not talk to religious leaders or think about religion they're starting to say we need to be engaging with religious leaders who oh by the way are some of the most important people in their communities right in these rural communities and so i really got to see the power of data transform lives um, and from there i started to just get more and more into data a few jobs later i worked um for a company that basically systematized what I had done in Iraq. They built a platform, uh, it's called Palantir, hmm. and it combined data management, so it was a data warehouse, it combined geospatial, so it had maps, and it combined network analysis. So you could say, I know this person 
is this person's brother and this person's cousin, and you were able to identify whole networks of people. And all the work I did when I was deployed um, was about building positive relationships with locals. There's obviously tons of people, um, part of the U.S. military structure, who are trying to find the bad guys and kill them. Um, but that was not my job. Yeah. You know, my job was to say, you know, as an anthropologist, I think we can build a relationship with this person and help build more stable communities. And so I did that in Central and East Africa. I also did that in Bahrain. And when I came back from Bahrain, I got a job as a data scientist at FEMA, where, you know, again, more and more, you know, we built this platform um, using Tableau. Right, and so Tableau has geospatial, you can do some network analysis, a lot more statistical analysis. I started learning SQL, so I started to learn how to manipulate databases even more. I started learning R, um, you know, statistical programming language, so I started being able to build my own models, uh, statistical models. And so with FEMA, we were really looking at, you know, how do we deliver assistance to people in need more quickly how do we ensure that we know in the moment how much money is left on particular grants that can be given out to people in need? And so, and then, you know, during that time is when I was sort of like, I got to figure out how to settle down. And I was looking at um, opportunities in Kansas City. I had a couple opportunities come up, but the mission at Hallmark, you know, about building relationships um, really it really struck a chord with me, you know, and so I got a job as a data scientist at Hallmark. So what's next? We talk about, uh, that's a good dang question. Cyclic. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. We talk about, um, you know, you, you may never accomplish settled down. Yeah. Or you, oh, you I never answered that question yeah, either. It's, like it's, it's hard yeah. to define settled down. Yeah. But what's your next uh, mission? What is, what's your aim? Yeah. So I think there's, let me answer the question about, you know, will I ever feel comfortable mm -hmm. about being settled down? I don't know why I just said, let me answer that because I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> um, I don't think, I think there will, I will always have a passion in my belly. There's something about me that is <laughs> constantly at 11. You know, like the scales from 1 to 10, I'm always at 11. Yep. <laughs> I think that'll always be the case. But, you know, in one of the other podcasts, we talked about um, the challenge of, you know, living in the suburbs and living a different life. And I think the thing that will be easier about it is that I am learning things about myself that I could not have learned otherwise. That's probably one thing. The kinds of, you know, um, the, the kinds of things that I can learn about myself being settled down, I would never have been able to learn um, w when I was constantly on the go. That's one thing. The second thing is that the things I thought I could never have if I was settled down, some of those things I can have. And so, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot in my book and I talk a lot about in these podcasts is that the camaraderie I developed playing rugby, being a firefighter, being in combat. I was in a fraternity, Alpha Phi Delta. 
you know, the camaraderie that I developed and the close friendships that I have until today, I would have thought that I could never develop really deep, meaningful relationships uh, when I was settled down. You know, the I had the sort of stereotypical perspective of the suburbs, right? Mm. Um, it's all superficial. The only thing people care about is like whether your lawn is mowed and, you know, how nice your house is. The car in your driveway. The car in your driveway. Yeah. You know, people don't connect with each other. They don't build, build real relationships. They're just, you know, not alive. You know, it's like if you're not running into burning buildings, then <laughs> how are you alive as a person? <laughs> and, you know, I've been really fortunate. Um, we had a conversation with our friend Katie and, you know, we call her the couple matchmaker. You know, she's really connected us with, um, you know, 10 other couples that we are really close with. We have neighbors here that, you know, it's not just a superficial wave in the driveway. Hi, how are you? Um, we're really building relate the kinds of relationships I honestly never thought would be possible. Um, and so I think in those ways, settling down is it's a new adventure i'm learning more about myself obviously it's not the same as jaunting off to syria mm -hmm. or yemen um but it has a lot to offer and honestly it's clearly something i needed you know and so you say what's next for me i think from a work perspective, you know, I, I love the work I do. You know, I stopped being a data scientist and I moved more into the data engineering space and working on data strategy. That's really challenging and there's a lot of opportunity to help a place like Hallmark um, enter the digital age, you know, and transform the systems it uses to engage with uh, consumers and build relationships. So I think from a workspace, I'll continue to go down that path. From a, another personal perspective, I think this project that you and I are talking about right now is a big deal for me. You know, there was a moment when I really had to decide how I define success when it comes to this book. And there was a long period of time where I just listened to what everybody else said. You know, it's, you got to find an agent, you got to find a publisher, you get a, an advance, and then, you know, you publish your book and, and that's how we define success. And I've had to wrestle with that. You know, I never found an agent. And the question is, you know, are you going to be one of these fabled authors who spends five years or six years you know living in their car and eventually one day some agent finds them and they go on to make millions of dollars right yep or you know for me like is that how i define success and i've decided that success for me is really about sharing my story it's really about having these kinds of conversations because even just in the conversation that you and i are having jacob you know i've learned a lot about myself and put into words things that I haven't before, you know, and, and we had dinner with a friend of ours last night, you know, and she's like, oh, I know the exact person who you should talk to about your story, about your project, you know, and there's an opportunity for me to share and this other person to share, you know, there's, and so it's created, 
And so success for me, you know, I would define it as my ability to share my story and participate in other people's story as well. And so, yeah, I think that's, that, that'll be a big part of what's next for me. Gotcha. All right. Well, it's been a, a great conversation, Jacob. Like I said, I mean, um, every time I sit and talk with friends of mine, I'm really surprised by um, the depth of the conversation, like how real it is. So I just want to say thanks a lot for taking time out of your day to, uh, to talk with me. Yeah, I appreciate it too. I mean, uh, like you said about depth, it, uh, you don't have these conversations every day. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we've known each other for two years. Yeah. And I learned more today about you than I have learned in two years. <laughs> yeah, that's um, for sure. And uh, I just appreciate that. And, you, and that you're willing to share your story and have these conversations because it's not easy to put yourself out there and uh, talk about your truth and, and what you're looking for um, after our, the work that you've put in. So. Yeah, I appreciate it. So thanks a lot.